It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Elton John is one of the most highly acclaimed and successful artists of all time. He has sold over 300 million records and CDs worldwide, won five Grammy Awards, a Tony Award, and an Academy Award. Joining us today to talk about the life and legacy of Elton John is Mark Bego, author of Rocketman. Mark has written over 65 books involving rock and roll and show business. His writing often appears in People, Us, Billboard, Record World, and Cosmopolitan. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So, Mark, you're the author of biographies in the rock and roll and show business worlds. What got you interested in writing these types of books? I have to say it started out in college. I used to work for the um, college newspaper at Central Michigan University, where I studied journalism. And I discovered that if I had a record review column in the local uh, college paper, I got free albums, which I thought was the coolest thing when I was 17. (laughs) Then I discovered if I did concert reviews, I got free concert tickets. I was like, oh, my God, I love this. So I got a call one day at my apartment, and uh, it was ABC Records calling to say, "Uh, Steely Dan is coming to your campus to do a concert. Would you be interested in interviewing Steely Dan? Well, yes. (laughs) I was, oh, my God, I thought this was a dream. So in the middle of the interview, this light went on in my head, and I thought, interview rock stars. That's what I want to do for a living, and that was the beginning of it. Mark, what was so your first? I was going to say, Mark, Go what ahead. was your first big story? My first big story, probably Crosby, Stills, and Nash, was a big one, and in, in on, on campus. Then a big story for me when I got to New York was an Us Magazine article I did on uh, Billy Davis and Marilyn McCoo from the Fifth Dimension. That became a really big thing. Then I was, I became the uh, nightlife editor of Q Magazine, uh, spelled C-U-E, as opposed to the British magazine, just the letter Q. It was the height of the disco era, and I got to interview Donna Summer for a cover story, Cher for a cover story, and Rod Stewart for a cover story. I had made it, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> but, I mean, you, you've probably been in this business a long time, too. You know, as soon as you get comfortable and start, you know, reveling in what you've accomplished, the bottom often gets pulled out of it, and Q Magazine ceased to exist. So I was back to uh, ground zero, and I started really concentrating on books. You know, as I was listening to your story, it was taking me back to being a college graduate. I had a, a degree in marketing, and my first job was for a music video television station that was supposed to rival MTV. We were U68 on the old U68 television. We had. Um, I love it. And I love it. And I, it was similar. I was a young kid meeting those types of people, thinking that, you know, I had the dream job, and we know who won that war. (laughs) 
and why I'm doing what I'm doing now. But I totally get it. So, you know, you start off on this career doing what you love. And I don't think there's anything better that you can do in life. I don't think so either. I think, you know, there's an old quote, and I can't remember who actually said it, that if you do what you love for an occupation, you never work a day in your life. You're doing what you love. And that's, that's exactly how I feel about writing books about rock stars and show business. This was what I always dreamed of doing. And I'll be darned, I'm doing it. <laughs> and, you know, you've worked with just about anyone who's anyone. And is there a favorite story over the years that you'd like to share with us? I have some really interesting stories. I've gotten to travel with celebrities, especially my dear friend Mary Wilson of the Supremes, who's an absolute doll. And we've got a, a huge book out at the moment called Supreme Glamour. Um, but I also get to find myself in situations with celebrities that I kind of look at myself and go, can you believe you're sitting next to Rod Stewart in a limo? It's, it's really quite exciting. Uh, one of my favorite stories was being in Aretha Franklin's home in uh, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan in the 80s. I went there to do a radio interview for a now uh, non-existent network called Westwood One Radio. And I had broadcast equipment with me. And uh, I was to ask Aretha different questions about her career. And then I was to, you know, have a moment of silence so they could patch in who, whatever the DJ was at whatever local station. And then Aretha would give her answers. Well, after about an hour and a half or so, Aretha said to me, she goes, okay, stop the tape. I've got to go in the kitchen and check on something. I said, okay. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, I'm sitting on Aretha Franklin's sofa <laughs> in her living room. So Aretha comes out, and she says, uh, okay, ask a few more questions. So I asked a few more questions. She goes, wait, i got to go back to the kitchen. Okay. So she went back to the kitchen. She sat down. She goes, okay, ask me another question. So I asked her a few more questions. She said, okay, I've got to go to the kitchen again. She went in the kitchen. This time, she stuck her head around the corner, and she said, chicken's done. Interview's <laughs> over. The maid will show you the door. That was the end. Aretha was not going to share a drumstick anything that day. I always thought that was kind of a hoot. That's like, okay, that's Aretha. That's the real Aretha I got to see. I actually thought the story was going to end with you being invited into the kitchen to eat. Yes, exactly. And that being the beginning of my rock and roll cookbook I did two years ago. But no, it didn't happen. So, Mark, now you've written about the life of Elton John. When did you first meet Elton? I met Elton in the 80s. Um, there's a gentleman in his circle, Tony King. Tony has worked for the Rolling Stones and Elton on and off over the last 50 years. And uh, it was Tony King who took myself and my dear friend David Salador, my publicist, backstage to meet Elton. And uh, it, was, it was really quite a thrill to see him and then go out into Madison Square Garden and watch him perform and go, oh, my God, I was, I was just shaking hands with him a minute ago. <laughs> Here he is entertaining 18,000 people. Um, so that was, that was really kind of an exciting moment. I was reintroduced to Elton by my dear friend Mary Wilson of the Supremes. She uh, was invited to the 2016 Oscar party that Elton John hosts every, uh, every year. And uh, I was her guest, and we got to meet Elton again, who's very gracious, really a nice host, and uh, very exciting to see him again. And I'm fortunate enough to say that Mary and I have gone to two subsequent Elton John Oscar parties, and he's, he's always delightful, always working the room. You don't know who's going to be in the room. It could be anybody. And uh, it, it's quite exciting. And he's, he's an exciting guy who loves this business and really kind of has devoted himself to his music. And, you know, he's, I, he's someone I identify with, Joan, um, because 
he's someone who grew up sitting in his room, listening to records, and dreaming he could be part of the entertainment business. And basically, that's, that's what I did as well. So Elton really has a, uh, an interesting parallel in my life, at least in my mind. What obstacles did Elton have to overcome, and you as well? What did you both have to overcome in your life to achieve the success that you do? Well, Elton was kind of a chubby uh, kid in, in uh, England, and he was very talented from a very early age. And although he was trained in classical music, when rock and roll came along, he decided he really wanted to be into rock and roll. And as he has said so many times, he looked anything like a you know, but like a rock star. He was not, you know, sexy or suave or, or interesting like a Rod Stewart. He, he couldn't move like a Mick Jagger. Um, he certainly wasn't, uh, didn't have the charisma of uh, 1950s, early 60s uh, Elvis Presley. So he really, it was a dream of his, and he was dying to break out of his shell and become the flamboyant, <laughs> glitter and sequin-covered Elton John we know now. So he was someone who also put up with a lot in his childhood. He felt like he was kind of neglected by his father and uh, placated by his mother. One of his great champions in his life was his stepfather, Fred, uh, whom he has spelled his name backwards and always called him Durf <laughs> for, for the entirety of his life. Um, but he was, he was someone who longed to really blossom forth into becoming a rock star and overcame all obstacles, and he did. And, and it's amazing, the career that he's had, really amazing. Well, and I like the moral of that story because so many of us have these blocks that we put up for ourselves that keep us from achieving the things that we want to. And, and as you described, here was this chubby kid who would be anything but a rock star who created this onstage persona and went on to be the leader in the world. It's true. It's true. And the funny thing is, um, parallels between his career and mine is that you have no idea what opportunities are going to spring forth from what, you know, what situations. And you really have to you know, keep your eyes open, and, and you have to want, you have to have a goal, and you have to want to achieve this goal, and then you have to recognize when opportunities come along. For me, I moved to New York City with those clippings from my college newspaper, ready to set the publishing world on fire, and it didn't exactly happen that way immediately. Mm -hmm. I ended up typing contracts at Grosset and Dunlap Books, uh, which was great because I, I got to really be intimately involved with people's publication contracts. Uh, including one of the ones I worked on was Norman Mailer's Marilyn Monroe book back then. I would uh, type up the different uh, foreign agreements when they were with sub-licensing. And I remember sitting there going, oh, my God, I wish I could have my name on one of these contracts one day. Well, I'll be darned if I didn't leave that job after six months. But two years later, I ran into my boss. And she said, what are you, what are you doing at the moment? I said, well, I am uh, doing some freelance writing. Uh, I've done a few things for Billboard magazine, Record World magazine. Are they paying you much? Well, let me see. Uh, Five dollars a review. <laughs> so I wasn't really setting the world on fire. And she said to me, "This was her name was Alice Derice, and she's still a friend of mine, uh, lives in California." She said to me, "Grosset and Dunlap is is wanting to do some pop music bios. Let's go out to lunch and see who we can come up with who has like a TV connection and hits on the chart at the moment that kids like." And we came up with two titles, Barry Manilow 
and The Captain and Tennille. And those were my first two books. So the, the moral of the story is you have, don't ever burn a bridge. Right. Um, Alice had ended up firing me from Grasset and Dunlap. She said, obviously, your career is not going to be typing contracts for the rest of your life. Go pursue your writing career. And I'll be darned if it wasn't Alice, who I ran into two years ago, who gave me my start in the book business. So I will always be grateful to her. And, you, you know, we have those angels. I'm sure you have those in your life, too, Joan. Right, right. And so you learned the importance of overcoming those rejections and staying the course. For Elton, what was it like for him early? Did he face a lot of rejection? Well, it really, it was, it was something, it was a gradual sort of thing. He uh, originally started out professionally playing music behind different American acts that would come to uh, England to tour, including Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. And he was on stage with, with these acts, whom he highly revered, these American acts that he had their 45s, he had their records in his room. He was very excited about that. But he got to gradually transition into being on stage, being part of the act, making the music, being an important part of show business. And it made him long to step out into the spotlight. But he really didn't know how to do it. And it really wasn't until he met Bernie Taupin, his longtime lyricist and best friend, right. that he found the missing piece, the missing element. Elton was, was and is absolutely brilliant at composing songs and playing the piano in, and improv, you know, doing improvisational kinds of things just off, off the cuff. He's so talented at that. But the one thing he couldn't really center on was lyric writing and, and coming up with songs that had meaning. And when he met Bernie Coppin, that gave him the impetus to really express himself on stage and, and give him, you know, story songs to tell. And if you listen to those early Elton John albums, a lot of those songs really told stories. I remember being in high school in uh, Bluefield Hills, Michigan, and my favorite rock group was Three Dog Night. Love Three Dog Night. Uh, which is a whole other side story, because I ended up doing a great book with Jimmy Greenspoon at Three Dog Night. But one of the songs on their Suitable for Framing album, 1969, was a song called Lady Samantha, written by this unknown guy, Elton John. And I was like, oh my God, I love that song. And then when I first saw the Elton John debut album come out in America, I was like, oh my God, i got to check this out. So I have really been following Elton's career since before he even had his own releases in America. So it's exciting for me to follow, have followed him to this point where he is, is he's bigger than Elvis, in a way. Mm -hmm. He's lasted much longer than Elvis, and Elvis was his big idol. And he hasn't fallen into the same pits uh, and, and dangers that, El that Elvis did with the drug use. And, and he came, Elton came so close to ending up like an Elvis Presley with a tragic ending, and right. it's, it's inspirational to see how he's dug his way out of that. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. So he had some challenges when it seemed like he had everything in the world. What was happening to him? What did the attention and the stardom do to him? And then how was he able to pull himself out from that? Well, one of the things that he had as pressure is that everyone on the inside of the music business realized that Elton was gay. And Elton couldn't come to terms with this. And, uh, in fact, he had, you know, this masquerade marriage to his sound mm -hmm. engineer he did in the, uh, in the 80s. He uh, would pose with women. He would claim to be bisexual, finally. And then, finally, he became comfortable in his own skin. 
and became really a champion for gay rights and, and for stepping up to the plate because of AIDS. And uh, the young uh, AIDS victim, Ryan White, was really an inspiration for Elton. Elton saw someone who had contracted AIDS not through sex or, or risky behavior of any sort, but from a blood transfusion. And uh, he watched Ryan being shunned by society, driven uh, out of his school, out of his hometown. And uh, Elton stepped up to the plate. And this gave him such inspiration to stand up and be himself. And it was partially the reason that he sought help to uh, go to rehab and, uh, and, and solve these problems. And now he's an absolute uh, you know, rehab and anti-substance uh, spokesperson. And he's tried very desperately to keep several of his friends in the business from falling into, into a drug uh, pitfall. Um, one of them that frustrated him the most was George Michael. There was mm -hmm. no stopping George Michael. And, and it's, it's something that frustrates Elton to this day to think of George and how he couldn't help him at all. Do you think it's, you know, the lesson in all of this is that we can find peace when we learn how to live our truth, whatever that may be? I think so. I really think so, especially if you're doing something creative, something that gives you joy, something that gives other people uh, joy of some sort. I think when you find that positive course that you feel really good about, uh, I think that it really, it, it magnifies your success. It, it isn't uh, so much an ego boost as a confidence builder. You realize that you are on the right track, that you are doing the right thing. And I think that, uh, that Elton has that sense. And uh, I hope I have that sense. <laughs> Some days I go, what the heck am I doing here? But I think we all do. You know, I think that the paths that we're on, uh, once we find a course that uh, is comfortable for us, that, that is satisfying, that make us happy, that make people around us happy, I think that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing, and that's something that Elton has definitely achieved. What do you think Elton is most proud of? Uh, I think that he's most proud of his music and his outspoken, uh, his position to be an outspoken uh, proponent of human rights, um, gay rights, women's rights, uh, the rights to be as outrageous as you want. Uh, I think that he's someone who really appreciates where he came from, the struggles that he had to sort of break through out of his shell and, uh, and become the Elton John we know now. He's someone that, uh, I mean, he's, he's amidst this tour, which he calls the farewell tour. I think it's going to be like the share farewell tour. Right. <laughs> Never can say goodbye. Um, I think that he's in love with what he does. He's in love with bringing joy and happiness to the audiences that he performs in front of. And he loves making music. It's his music. It's something he can be proud of. And um, it, it makes it a, a, a delight for me to write about a subject like this, it, who has overcome obstacles, who has broken through to uh, a very devoted audience, and who can continue to make his, his music and his art at a level that, that he has. And it's, it's an inspiration. Uh, whether, I don't think he ever set out to be, oh, gee, I'd like to be an inspiration to young musicians. You know, he was just trying to make his own way. But that is very, very uh, definitely what he has become someone who has shown that you can succeed in a difficult uh, business, like show business. Um, and he's, he's very, very proud of what he's done. And, and I am, too. I, I feel like I followed him from the very beginning. It's like, oh, my God. Right. 
It's that, we that, feel like we all know him, right? It, yeah, it's like exactly, he's a friend. Exactly. Who right. on the planet doesn't know who Elton John is? Exactly. In a favorable way. In a favorable way. And I think this is such a great book. And, and then once again, that book is Rocket Man. If you would like to learn more about Mark and his work, you can visit markbego.com. That's B-E-G-O, markbego.com. Or as always, you can visit our website, C-Y-A-C-Y-L.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, and be sure to sign up for our mailing list. Mark, in our final moments, what's a takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Keep on rock and rolling. Love it. <laughs> I definitely do. If you love the music, uh, definitely keep on, keep rock and roll alive. That's, that's my goal now. Mark, thank you so much for joining us and for providing insight into the larger-than-life Elton John. He's flamboyant, he's outrageous, and he's always gifted, and he's been such an integral part of so many lives, mine included. So it was fun learning about him and learning more about you and your work. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Calm, vitality, mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th and Madison. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. Today is Dr. Katherine Berndorf, co-founder and medical director of the Motherhood Center, a treatment center in New York City for pregnant and new moms experiencing anxiety and depression. She specializes in treating women before, during, and after pregnancy, as well as at other times of transition in their lives. Dr. Berndorf is an associate professor of psychiatry at Cornell. She was a regular mental health columnist for Self Magazine and has appeared on numerous television programs, including The Today Show, Good Morning America, MSNBC, and CNN. She is the co-author of the new book, What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions During Pregnancy and Motherhood. She's here today to discuss when you don't have feelings for your newborn. Welcome, Dr. Berndorf. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. So, Catherine, when we have a baby, as mothers, we believe that we will fall deeply in love with this child and, and that we'll experience those feelings the minute we set eyes on the baby. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Why is that the case? 
I think for many women, there's this expectation that they're going to fall madly in love with this with this new child and that there's a pressure actually to feel that way, right? That if you expect it and you've heard it and you see it in social media and on TV and all around, you're setting yourself up to have a very particular experience that doesn't happen frequently. And it doesn't make you a bad mother or a bad person or unloving in any way, shape or form. You've never met this baby, right? They've been a fantasy in your head, even if as they were gestating in your body. You know, you, you have to get to know them. That deep love that people expect to feel is a setup for, for feeling defective and deficient. That's actually very interesting because it goes against what most of us believe. And, and so you, you use the word frequently in that. So not having those feelings then could be considered more, quote unquote, normal. You got it. That's exactly. It, it's funny you say it that way because, you know, upwards of 80 percent of women will have what's called the postpartum blues, right? The baby blues, which we think happens because you're at, you know, at the end of pregnancy, you're at your highest levels of progesterone and estrogen and hormones that are you know, surging throughout the body. And then they, you go through the process of labor and then delivery. And a few days after that, you, during those few days after you've had the baby, right, you can see, oh, I've lost weight because the baby's come out, but you're losing fluid. And, and these hormones are shifting and plummeting, right? You're going from the highest levels to the, the, the lowest levels. And, and it's that, that difference between the high, high and the low, low of the hormones that puts you into this kind of hormonal and also mood sensitivity tailspin. And that's what defines and describes the blues. And it's happening also at that time, one, you're supposed to be falling in love with your kid when you feel sort of, you know, these ups and these downs. And so to your very good point, I would say to people, you're the unusual person who falls madly in love with her baby. When you do go through this, is it common to have outsiders say things like, what's wrong with you? You're supposed to love your baby. Does that just fuel the oh, fire? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Perfect question. It, it, it absolutely does. It makes it, it makes us feel worse. It makes us feel like we are, maybe we are defective, that the, the person on the outside doesn't get what's happening on the inside for us. The outside and the inside don't match up. And when that's the case, it's often missed. And so unless you're telling someone, they're not going to know it. So, Catherine, what do you advise when we're going through all of these physical and emotional changes? What can we do to move through this and to manage them? Well, I, I hate to, to say it's our responsibility and put the onus on like the new mom, because that's a very difficult um, you're in a diff at a difficult time, but if you can say how you feel, speak up when you're down or, you know, speak the secret. Don't be scared to say how you feel because that will help diffuse and relieve and, and get you on your way to feeling better, believe it or not, if you share that. One other thing I'll, I'll, I'll say to those on the other side, right, not so not for the new mom, but those around a new mom, look at them in the eye and say, how are you? And just wait, just pause, hold the gaze and really mean what you're asking. And it's such a powerful and believe it or not, 
simple thing to do that really says to the other person, I, I want to know how you feel. I mean what I'm asking. Are you okay? Are you good? Because if you are, that's great. But if you're not, I want to know. Catherine, are there any signs that someone should be aware of that would tell them that this is more than the normal baby blues and it might be time to seek professional help? There are many, but they're not always easy to spot. So the baby blues are, are not a consistent or persistent state. They typically happen a few days after birth till a, a couple weeks after. And during that time, they're not happening sort of permanently. That whole time is not only the baby blues, right? It happens in moments of hypersensitivity or, as we say, mood lability, really high or really low, or you're crying while you're laughing at the same time. It's this weird mix of, quote, hormonal feelings where you just kind of feel off but highly raw. And that doesn't, that's not every minute of those two weeks, but it's moments during that that can feel very profound. But then you recover and you're like, okay, and then you go on with your day or your life or whatever. When those feelings or those moments continue to add up or crescendo or um, happen more frequently, and then they're going on beyond two weeks or three weeks, you're talking about something else. But when it goes on and persists and there's a sense of hopelessness or effortfulness that doesn't make sense or fatigue that's to the bone and not just because you're not sleeping when the, because you're a new mom or, um, or your appetite's off or you're, you're feeling like you know life is sort of bleak and it's black and white as opposed to having any color in it. Then you're starting to talk about depressive symptoms. And also depressions in the postpartum can look very anxious. So you might be, you know, keyed up or just really overly vigilant or super cautious in a way that's not allowing you to socialize. Or it's all these words and things or experiences that really are telling you something more is going on. The book is What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions During Pregnancy and Motherhood. If you would like to get more information about Dr. Berndorf and her work, you can visit themotherhoodcenter.com. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing awareness to this common problem. Thank you, Joan. We'll be right back. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Being told that you need spine surgery can be frightening. When recommended, is it always necessary? Joining us today to provide important information to make the best decision is Dr. David Hanscom, an orthopedic complex spinal deformity surgeon based in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Hanscom's new book is Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Welcome, Dr. Hanscom. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be on the show. So, doctor, as I said, being told that you need spine surgery can be frightening. Do you believe that there are many surgeries that are performed today that may not be the best course of treatment? Um, I think probably the majority of spine surgeries should not be done, probably over 70%. And it's become sort of, that's actually why I quit. I didn't really retire, I quit. And I would see three to five patients every week having surgeries done on normal spines without rehab with catastrophic results. And it was, it's really bad. Medicine right now is really hurting people, but especially in spine surgery. We're making quick decisions. We're doing major procedures. People are, are doing very poorly, and it's not going well for the public. Doctor, 
operating on the spine, I mean, for me, that would be one of the last areas of my body that I would want to have touched. How did we get to this place where this is almost routine? You know, I'm not really sure. I sort of watched this happen. I was a resident back in the 80s, and they started doing fusions where where they weld the vertebrae together for back pain. It started in Australia. I trained in Hawaii. I watched it come across Hawaii. Then it hit the mainland. And then in 1997, they developed some new technology where they put instrumentation in front of the spine as well as back of the spine. And it allowed us a higher chance of getting a fusion. But in the midst of all this technology, nobody looked at the data. It turns out there's not one research paper that says we should be doing surgery for back pain, not one in 50 years. Have you heard what the success rate is for a back surgery for back pain? It's 22%. And then the other thing that I didn't realize until maybe five years ago, there's several research papers that document that if you operate and do any procedure in the presence of chronic pain, that you can worsen the outcome up to 40% of the time. In 5 to 10% of the time, it can become permanent. Doctor, what are the most common causes of back pain? We know the exact cause of back pain between 5 to 10% of the time to some type of tumor or broken bone or infection that we can identify the source. But with just plain back pain, we actually don't know. We postulate that it's muscles, tendons, and ligaments around the spine. The most common reason for doing a back fusion for back pain is, quote, degenerative disc disease. I'm assuming you've heard that term. Ironic is that we don't know where back pain comes from, but we actually do know that chronic back pain does not come from a disc. The data shows very clearly that there's no correlation between back pain and bone spurs, arthritis, disc degeneration, bone to bone. None of those have been shown to be a cause of back pain. Yet it's the most common reason we do back surgery for back pain is for degenerated disc. The better term would be normally aging disc rather than, quote, degenerative disc disease. How much of a role does our lifestyle or even our emotions play in back pain? Well, they did a study out of Chicago, which is quite famous now, where they took a group of patients who had back pain for less than three months. There's a part of the brain called the nociceptive center, which means that the acute pain says it hurts. And on these research MRI scans called functional MRI scans, a certain part of the brain would light up. And that was true in every patient. Then they took a group of people who had back pain for more than 10 years. There's no activity in the pain center. It was only in the emotional center. Then they looked at the group of acute patients, less than three months of pain. They scanned them every three months. About half of those became chronic, the other half resolved. In the group that resolved, everything went quiet. In the group that became chronic, every one of them switched from the pain center to the emotional center. The current definition of chronic pain is that it is an embedded memory that becomes connected with more and more life experiences and the memory can't be erased. It's like learning how to ride a bicycle, it becomes a permanently memorized set of circuits. Would the goal then be to create new pathways? Correct. So then, should we be engaging in behavior that would produce more of the feel-good chemicals like serotonin, dopamine? Correct. And that is the solution. And what happens in pain, you're trapped. Nobody's telling you exactly what's going on. It's been several papers have documented that the impact of chronic pain on people's lives is similar to having terminal cancer. It's that bad. Then patients get labeled. Then they get bounced around the system. They have their hopes elevated. Then they have their hopes dashed. It's actually been documented in animal studies that the way to induce a depression is to, to repeatedly dash hopes. And so you're in this system of being bounced around from procedure to procedure to procedure. You keep getting your hopes up. They keep getting dashed. Your life keeps falling apart. And living in chronic pain is one of the worst parts of the human experience. And one in three Americans has the problem. It's really wrecking our society. Then I think back surgery is actually a big factor and contributed to this because we do hundreds of thousands of these operations a year. About two-thirds of those should not be done. 
you're taking normally conscientious, active people and hurting their spines, damaging them, and it's a big problem. We're really hurting people. And, and that's why I quit. As the technology's gotten better, you think the spine surgery would improve. What happens is that we're now doing bigger operations that have a higher complication rate. Things have gotten much, much worse the last five years. Understanding the bigger picture, the poor results of the surgeries, the risk of complications, if you could write a prescription for someone who is suffering with back pain, what would that be? What should that person be doing before even considering surgery? Well, first of all, again, the acute pain goes to the pain center, and the usual good posture, biomechanics, rest, ice, heat, those things work well. Then the pain starts going past three or four months. Your brain is now starting to memorize the impulses, just like an athlete learning a skill. And it starts to become chronic, and that's where it becomes a complicated but not complicated solution. In other words, multiple things affect pain. For instance, there's a study out of Israel that shows lack of sleep actually causes back pain. It actually causes chronic back pain. And so first thing is sleep, making sure you get adequate rest. And that means consistently seven or eight hours a night for at least three months before you ever consider surgery. The second thing is stress. And people forget that with stress, it's not psychological, but when you're threatened either by a mental or physical threat, your body secretes stress hormones and you feel anxious. Well, anxiety is not a diagnosis, it's just just a reflex that says danger. And we keep trying to treat anxiety psychologically or it's just a survival reflex. And it's much, much more powerful than, than a conscious brain. So if you try to deal with anxiety with conscious means, it's a big problem. The way you decrease anxiety is you decrease the stress chemicals. And that's where exercise, mindfulness, meditation, relaxation, expressive writing exercises, forgiveness, all these things calm down the body chemistry and decrease anxiety. When you're trapped, in other words, the antidote to anxiety is control. When you're trapped by anything, whether it's finances or relationship or pain, your body secretes more stress chemicals in order to try to escape and solve the problem, and you become angry. Basically, anger and anxiety are the same thing. So one of the big factors in chronic pain is that people are really frustrated, and rightfully so, and processing that anger is a big deal. It's actually the biggest deal in the whole process is actually processing anger. The medication adjustment is a big deal. You have to get your medication stabilized. Your life outlook is a big deal, how you approach the pain in general. But the bottom line, the way you solve chronic pain, again, much different than acute pain, remember it's a memorized set of circuits. The essence of solving chronic pain is that basically you connect to your healing capacity, your own healing capacity, and you feel safe. And when you feel safe, you have a very pronounced, profound change in your body's chemistry. Your sense of well-being goes up, your nerve conduction slows down, you physically feel less pain. And what we've seen with hundreds of patients is people going to pain-free. They don't just manage the pain, the pain actually disappears. And doctor, what you just taught us, we're, we're talking about back pain, but I would assume that that would relate to any type of pain. Correct. So what happened now is in chronic pain myself for 15 years, I had 17 of the possible 30 symptoms of chronic pain, which included migraine headaches, ringing in my ears, PTSD, burning in my feet, skin rashes, back pain, neck pain. The list was long and I had 17 of them at the same time and I couldn't figure out what was going on. Nobody in the medical profession could tell me the problem. I heard a lecture in 2011 where this Dr. Schumer explained the relationship between elevated stress chemicals and the creation of physical symptoms. Remember when your body is bathed with adrenaline, cortisol, and histamines to stress chemicals, that every cell is affected, so you'll get different symptoms. So I had 17 of these at the same time, and in about five minutes, it all made sense. Within six months after I, I would say the word awkwardly in retrospect, learned how to calm down my nervous system, every symptom disappeared, and 20 years later, I'm fine. The book is, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? If you would like to get more information about Dr. Hanscom and his work, you can visit Back 
www.innovationsincontrol.com. Doctor, in about 30 seconds or less, in our final moments, what does someone need to know before having surgery? That the data shows really clearly that it's really critical to do what's called prehab, where you address every factor that deals with chronic pain. I did write a book called Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. We had over 100 patients who canceled their surgeries, even with surgical problems as they calmed down their nerve system and moved forward. But it's about a 90% self-directed process. You don't need a pain clinic. You can do it yourself at backincontrol.com. It's the action plan. Take responsibility. Spend at least as much time deciding on back surgery as you would buying a car. It's a huge deal. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Sometimes when you find a quote that really speaks to you, you want to share it on social media. But is that all you're doing with it? This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures with a social media simplified tip. Don't be the prince or princess of reposting. It's great to share motivational quotes, but make it your own by adding your thoughts on what the quote means to you. Why do you like it? How does it tie into your business or your life? Put your color branding behind the quote. Design a post with your followers in mind. And don't forget to give attributes to the person who made the original quote. Finally, include your name somewhere in the design. So if someone else shares it, they know it came from you. If you need help with your social media for business, give us a call. You can check out our website at smcventures.biz or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. Get social with Sue. Do you struggle to find the balance between elite performance and mental wellness? Hi, I'm Scott Doty, academic mentor, performance coach, and founder of Brainstorm Tutoring and Arts. And I often tell my students and my clients that wellness is the first step to achievement. When we say that we want to achieve at a high level and achieve peak performance when the stakes are high, whether that be on a big test, on the admissions process for college or grad school, nailing the interview for the dream job, killing it on the big performance for your theater or your music or your sports, we always begin with wellness. And so we start with the basics, sleep, hydration, breath work, community, and positive self-talk. From the basis of incredible personal, emotional, mental wellness, we have the stability to build into our goals to achieve at our best performance level in whatever it is that we're performing and pursuing and endeavoring to kill and crush and dominate in. We begin with wellness and then performance follows. If you want to hear more about our holistic approach to elite performance, please check out Brainstorm's website, stormthetest.com. The mystic Rumi said, the quieter you become, the more you can hear. Hi, I'm Allison Ayati, owner of Awaken Sound Health. These days, it's hard to find quiet moments. Most of us are reachable by phone, text, email, and multiple instant messaging platforms any time of the day and night. Social media and a 24-hour news cycle keep us glued to our devices. And then we wonder why our minds are always buzzing, why our thoughts are a constant chatter, looping over the same issues again and again. You have an inner voice and an inner wisdom that you cannot truly hear until you learn how to remove yourself from distractions and quiet your thoughts. You may be thinking, yes, but even if I sit in silence, I hear the prattle of my mind. What if I told you there was a way to create stillness in your body and quiet in your mind so you can hear your inner voice and tap into your inner wisdom? The answer lies in a very simple technique using therapeutic sounds to create an atmosphere of relaxation that helps alleviate tension in your body and bring serenity to your mind. 
At Awaken Sound Health, we weave therapeutic sounds into healing music to bring you to a place of stillness and peace so you can tap into your intuitive self and once again hear the wisdom of your soul. It's time for you to try sound therapy. Book an appointment today at awakensoundhealth.com. Sound therapy is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Amy Collins, author of the book Infant Inspiration and creator of the online course Moms, Courageous Women Raising the Next Generation. Amy promotes thoughtful conversations about motherhood. Her insightful perspectives look to empower mothers to own their role, clarify how it works best for them, and confidently express it. She's here today to discuss why being a mom means being a leader. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. It's always good to be with you, Joan. Thanks for having me. Amy, as you mentor moms, you often remind them that they're leaders. How come this is something that you choose to highlight? It's interesting, Joan, because as I work with mothers, we talk a lot about their need to become more aware of who they are in their role as mom and who they want to become. And so this time when they take my course gives them the opportunity to take a step back and really think about developing a self-concept around being a mother. And a major part of that concept needs to be that they're leaders of their families. So, you know, even if they've never thought of themselves, Jonah's leaders, once a woman becomes a mother, she also has to recognize that she's a leader. And that's why I highlight this. The actual definition of a leader is guiding or directing the head of a movement, right? Or a political group or an organization or a team. Yet we need to remember that as mothers, we are guiding and we're the directing head of our own family. Some of us have partners and some of us don't, right? Either way, if we have children, we need to recognize that we're now in a leadership position because we're influencing our children on a daily basis, not only in regards to what they eat or what they wear, But in regards to their outlook on life, their attitude, their confidence, all those essential life skills. So that's why we're leaders. Amy, what do you do to encourage mothers to think of themselves as leaders? Making time to think about what's essential for mothers is really important. So I encourage them to take a step back and think about what they want for their families and just not run on the hamster wheel of life, right? Mm -hmm. So one recommendation that I often say is, Begin using the word leader to describe yourself. Read articles about leadership. Think of yourself on a daily basis as a leader of your family. You know, write down a list. How are you leading your children every day? Are you leading them in the area of nutrition, academic advancement, mental well-being, physical health, right? List out the various areas. And it's interesting because I listened um, to one of Brendan Bruchard's podcasts. 
and he has a great podcast on key elements of leaders. And one is, uh, I think it's the first one he mentions, it's something about the need to envision. And as mothers, we need to envision what we want tomorrow to look like for our families. Is there an exercise that you can offer that can help mothers do this? Absolutely. One of the exercises I always encourage moms to do is to develop a family mission statement, and that would prioritize their family values. It's not a guarantee of any type of family success, and it's not something that has to be stagnant. In fact, it can often grow with the family. And so I would recommend that mothers, you know, they encourage their families to do that by sitting down as a whole family and have each member state their top three values, right? It could be something like helpfulness, generosity, putting your best effort forward. And, you know, have each person think of a phrase or two that the family can use, something that they may already use within the family dynamics. Um, So, for example, like when I was growing up, my parents always said, you know, we encourage you to always do your best, right? That was part of our family mission statement. And other families, you know, they may use different types of wording. It really needs to be developed, Joan, over a course of time. It can be a couple family meetings. And then once it's complete, hang it up somewhere in your home where everyone can see it. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. These are great tips. If you would like to learn more about Amy and her work, you can visit amymcollins.com. Or, as always, to hear more from Amy, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Amy. A business's most valuable asset is its people. As a business owner myself, I've worked very hard and spent much time building an excellent team, happy, challenged, motivated, and secure. As a result, PSI Consultants is a highly respected and sought-after insurance agency. Protecting the team benefits everyone, so I provide employee benefits. Hi, I'm Ed Gaelic a life and health insurance broker and founder of PSI Consultants, located in Glenrock, New Jersey. We have specialized in personal insurance and company-sponsored health benefits since 1985. Here are the top ways having benefits equals more profits. Keep turnover low. Training new employees is expensive, so you want your people to stay with you and not seek other employment opportunities elsewhere. Increase productivity. Employees that have benefits know the value and feel more valued. This brings energy and positivity to the workplace. They produce more, are more motivated, accept challenges, and perform at optimal levels. Greater loyalty and morale. Employees feel greater loyalty to you and the business when they have benefits. There's a give-back effect from the employee. They will speak well of the company. This goodwill is built in free advertising. Employees have a team spirit, a pride in their job and their company. Attract new talent. Companies that offer benefits will attract and retain a better quality of employee. More talented, loyal, motivated, and happy employees will improve your company's bottom line. The long-term investment in having benefits for your employees far outweighs the short-term savings by not. To contact us and learn more, please visit our website at psi-consultants.com. We cure 80% of children with cancer. Go back 50 years, we were curing 20 to 30%. This is the miracle story of modern medicine. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures, saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. 
Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.